This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk has been active as a clinician, researcher, and teacher in the area of post-traumatic stress since the 1970s. Past president of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School, and medical director of the Trauma Center at the Justice Resource Institute in Brookline, Massachusetts, Dr. Vanderkoek has taught at universities and hospitals across the United States and around the world. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Treatment of Trauma. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Vanderkoek and I spoke about his three decades of research that informed the book, The Body Keeps the Score. We also talked about how an essential part of healing trauma is the development of interoception, a self-sensing ability that enables us to feel what we're experiencing in any given moment. We talked about how trauma healing needs to occur at the level of the organism and how certain modalities, such as EMDR, neurofeedback, yoga, and working with psychodramatic structures can help people become unstuck and discover a fluid, alive inner world. Finally, we talked about what supports trauma healing at a cultural level and why, in spite all of the pain and suffering he has witnessed, Dr. Vanderkoek remains optimistic about the power of the life force to promote healing. Here's my conversation with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk, I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about you, if that's okay, about your biographical story, and that you were born in 1943 in the Netherlands, right in the midst of World War II. And what I'd love to know a bit about is how the world that you were born into, the family that you were born into, how you feel that shaped your life's work, really, this work of helping people heal from trauma, what the connection is. Well, that's what therapists like to do. They like to construct life stories and say, oh, it all makes sense. But I'm one of five siblings. I'm the only person in my family who is remotely interested in the subject. So, um, yes, the Second World War had a big impact on my vision of the world. But, you know, so so did it on my brother, who is the Ministry of the Interior, uh, of the Environment in the Netherlands, my brother who is a book editor so you cannot make these linear connections okay but on the inside how did your experience of being born in the netherlands at that time do you feel inform this <laughs> yeah. see, i i don't believe in these this uh-huh. okay um, well this is very interesting we have we have multiple impacts on our lives and we have character character and psychologists are very good say oh now I understand but how about my siblings um, so no it's all multifactorial and, and I think therapists like to say oh because your mother was like that you turned out like Donald Trump no not everybody has a mother like Donald Trump and up like Donald Trump okay we can move along although I can't <laughs> help I can't help but feel like there was something in that environment, the amount of trauma in that environment that must have somehow influenced you personally in some way. Yeah. You know, now see, that's, 
Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but compared to uh, people in Bangladesh or people down the street from here in Boston, I've had an exquisite childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, these meaning-making things don't really work. Uh, it goes deeper than that, rather than sort of historical data. I was a very good student. I was very interested in biology and in classical languages. I've always had a love for science and of poetry and history. And my love for studying trauma is very much founded in the gifts that were given to me that I came with. Now, Dr. van der Kolk, you spent three decades, really, I think, doing the research and creating the theoretical framework that became The Body Keeps the Score, an incredible book that broke a lot of new ground. And I just want to begin by getting our listeners on the same page with you. Why did you call the book The Body Keeps the Score? Because the body keeps the score. And because I think psychologists, therapists, and psychiatrists tend to ignore the fact that the function of our mind is to keep our bodies going. And the trauma gets stored in heartbreak and gut-wrenching sensations in your body and frozen musculature and inability to move. And so my, my somewhat, um, uh, my answer to your opening question is like, therapists like to explain things, but explaining things doesn't change anything. Um, trauma is lodged in your immune system, in your reactions, in your perceptions, in your uh, the way you react to people around you, your hormonal systems, and the sensations in your body. Uh, it's all very visceral, and that's where it plays itself out. And so, from what has been gratifying for me is to that those again I have been living at this time of the world and being at Harvard at the time that it got its first neuroimaging machine and doing the first neuroimaging study on what the traumatist brain looks like. Um, being in this interesting history gave me a perspective on, oh, that's what's going on. It sits in these very primitive survival areas of the brain that set the way that you hold your body. Okay, now I want to dig in deeply with you to this whole body level of trauma and how it's stored there. But before we do, I have to push this one more time. This meaning-making function, are you saying that this desire that we have as humans to make meaning and meaningful narratives out of our life is just really not all that valuable? Is that what you're saying? Am I hearing you correctly? No, I think it's what we do. And we do need to make meaning out of it, of course one of the things that happens with trauma is that people cannot make meaning out of it because trauma is fundamentally meaningless. Yet people will make meaning out of it. And so the meaning that people make out of trauma is I'm a terrible person. I'm a weakling. I'm no good. I'm damaged goods. Because we're forced, our, our creaturehood forces us to make meaning out of things. And the meaning that we make out of trauma is oftentimes a very distorted uh, interpretation depending on where you are and who you're trying to placate and how old you are and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So you're getting underneath the story to what's happening in the body. You talked about being able to see through fMRI what a traumatized brain looks like. fMRI and through your eyes and through your fingertips and through <clears throat> all kinds of measures. That doesn't mean that the story is not important because once you, when, when you're traumatized, you cannot tell a story. And so finding words for your experience is terribly important. But it's not a story. It's finding words for your internal experience. Mm-hmm. Knowing what's going on inside of you. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, it's very clear is that trauma is not a story about the past because the past is over. And it's really no longer relevant except in as far as you automatically replay the past and re-experience the past right now. So trauma is about the present. It's about your present experience. And that overcoming trauma, meaning, meaning 
means having to come to terms with the present moment. Okay, so if trauma is about our somatic experience, let's just say this body-level experience in the uh, present is, moment. Uh, no? Yeah, You're, well, you can be quite nuanced. You can help me. Somatic, mental, physiological, perceptual. It's getting that you get stuck at a certain point. Uh, uh, Pierre Genet, who was the first person who really wrote beautifully about trauma in 1889, says, all traumatized people have to, are fixated, have their lives checked, stopped at the moment of the trauma and have a hard time going on. And they get stuck there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on multiple levels. Uh, so your immune system may continue to fight something that isn't happening anymore. And your mind is becoming angry about things that are not happening anymore right now, but you project on people right now. Mm -hmm. that your whole, your whole, or the word I like to use is your organism. And your whole being gets stuck somewhere back there, interfering with being fully alive for the present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does seem like some people whose organism is stuck are in some way holding on, if you will, or unable to let go. And you actually begin your book, The Body Keeps the Score, with the story of a Vietnam vet that you worked with who didn't want to let go of the trauma because he thought it was some kind of betrayal to his loyalty right. to the other. So I'm curious yeah. to know more about this, this not letting go, if you will, when we're stuck. But, see, again, this is not a something... There's not a conscious decision. There's not something that people decide, or it's not a defense mechanism. It happens at a deeper level of organization of your brain. So if something breaks, and then you cannot accumulate new things, it's not a decision. It's a very, very primitive, animal-like parts of ourselves that. Just like, you know, we adopt a dog from the pound, the dog will continue to react, not because the dog decides, but because the dog continues to be set to experience things in a particular way. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to human beings also. Mm -hmm. So telling a story about what happened um, is a good thing to do because it gives you a context and gives you an explanation why you're so messed up. Um, it explains, it gives you an alibi, uh, but it doesn't change things. Mm -hmm. So tell me more what's happening at the organismic yeah. level when someone well, is experiencing trauma. Basically, the, areas of, the area of your, areas of your brain that have to do with safety, relaxation, belonging, purpose, direction, get affected. And so... Uh, you keep feeling things and reacting to things in a way that are bizarre, shameful, embarrassing to yourself or the people around you. And then you go to a therapist and the therapist helps to explain why you feel that way. And that can be very helpful. Um, but, it, but explaining it doesn't make it go away. And so the big, the big challenge is how do you actually rewire the brain so in the mind and the body so people feel safe. Mm -hmm. And do you think of all trauma as one big pot, if you will, or do you have categories that are important to you? Like this kind of trauma is really well, different than that kind. There, there's two main categories. And that is, I think, you know, we got into this field um, via trauma, via veterans. And most of the money for studies goes to veterans, so that's our modal population. Um, and then gradually what emerged is that there are many more traumatized people besides soldiers. And um, those are kids. And those are kids who grow up in the, in the context of deprivation and not being met, not being seen being hit, being molested, et cetera, et cetera. And that understanding hasn't really fully made it into our understanding. People still talk about trauma primarily, but as the research evolves slowly, what becomes clear is that most of the reactions 
that we see in people are not so much a result of a trauma, a event, but an attachment system in which they were threatened. And how does this understanding that there are really these two different types of trauma and that we need to honor developmental trauma, this trauma of growing up in a childhood where no one was attuned to you, let's say, as an example, how does that understanding change how we look at the treatment of trauma? Uh, the treatment of trauma treats the, uh, the approach to understanding the diagnosis, actually, huh? uh, because our diagnostic system is so miserable and so unscientific. We have really become non-diagnosticians because we have diagnoses that don't make any sense and have very little scientific validity, actually. But the issue is that is to become a di- diagnostician again, to see what is going on with this particular person what is working and what is not working. And our current diagnostic system doesn't really capture that. So a person may be very good at their work and be a good musician, um, be very sweet to other people at the workplace, but they just can't engage in the intimate relationships to become too frightened. That's not a result of trauma, usually. It's a result of attachment patterns that allow them to survive as kids that continue into adulthood. So a trauma, which is where this field started and to some degree got stuck, the trauma is an event that is horrific, like a rape or an assault or seeing your best friend blown up or stuff like that. Um, That becomes a memory, and that memory gets stuck. And that is actually very easy to deal with, a particular memory. like Something like EMDR is extraordinarily helpful for that and has about 80% cure rate for people who indeed have that one trauma and nothing else. But what evolves is that so much trauma occurs in the context of relationships and that the relationships are the big issue. Mm-hmm. How do you feel safe in relationships? And what are your perceptions of the world of who you are in relationship to other people as you grow up? Now, you ran a research study on EMDR, and here I am hearing you say 80% of people with a specific type of shock trauma can actually be healed with EMDR. That's a very strong statistic. You would think that more people would be using it if that's actually true. That's, that's what we found. Um, of course, about, about more than 100,000 people have been trained in EMDR, so a fair number of people know about it. Um, yeah, but then you get into the whole politics of this world, you know. There's this, this very miserable thing happened of so-called evidence-based treatments that you that people took this more simple treatments and said, um, after a number of weeks, comparing my method with people getting nothing, I get a 10% improvement. That means I have an evidence-based treatment. No, it means that your treatment is better than doing nothing. Uh, so, um, so, but what started to happen, I see this all the time in our field, is that people start to define themselves according to their methods rather than according to what they're trying to heal. And so people call themselves an EMDR therapist or IFS therapist or cognitive behavioral therapist. That means I specialize in that particular tool. But the issue is not, you know, you go to a carpenter who specializes in sawing or hammering, you go to a carpenter in order to build a house. Um, and so these tools are all useful for particular people under particular conditions. Um, that's not how it works out. And so people have these um, conflicts and competition between different schools of thoughts rather than focusing on how can I get my patient better. They focus on how my method works, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So EMDR, you know, data are very clear that it's an astonishingly effective treatment, but then people started to rebel against it, wiggling your fingers is stupid and crazy, but the data are there. So always the question when you do research is, do facts actually matter? Are people ever persuaded by facts? I like facts. Yeah, just look at the current political climate, see how much people love facts. 
Okay, I, I believe you that it's not necessarily in evidence. People are, people are primarily run by emotions, and they use facts in order to bolster their arguments, by and large. Yeah, I think you're making, I think, an important point. Now, I want to talk for a moment more about EMDR, because I think it's very possible that some of our listeners are familiar with it, but some aren't. But in answering this question of explaining EMDR and how it works, what I'd love to know is what's happening at the organismic level where the trauma, where the stuck place is. How does it mm. get shaken loose through EMDR? Right. Great question. Let's start with how talking works. How does talking shake the trauma loose? Do you know the answer to the question? It doesn't. No. Um, how does Prozac work? I will not know the answer to that. I'm asking you nobody, the questions, Dr. Vanderkoek. No, nobody, nobody knows the answer to the question, but then you do something weird, and people say, oh, I need to know how it works. Um, but, you know, the thing is, nobody knows how any of these things work. It's too bad you called me today, because tonight I hope to get the results in from our uh, neuro, neuroscience study of EMDR and we have been working for five years in the study, and tonight we open up the, open up the data more about what happens on the quantitative EEG and the fMRIs and uh, with EMDR. But the hypothesis is, is it promotes forty megahertz thalamocortical rhythms, which integrates uh, your sort of your limbic memories with your frontal lobe. Okay. Now explain to our, this is going to be an easier question, to our listeners who are unfamiliar with EMDR, what an EMDR therapist is doing and what's happening for me if I go to an EMDR therapist with a trauma. So when you go to EMDR, uh, you call up the, the, your images, feelings, memories about what's happened back there, and you don't necessarily talk about it. And as you hold that thought in mind, your therapist creates alternating movement. So you move your eyes back and forth, or sometimes you tap yourself from different parts of your body. And as that happens, the brain sets up a new associative networks. For example, um, when I learned EMDR, um, something quite bad that actually happened to me and that preoccupied me. Uh, and then I did my eye movements, and the next thing came up was, uh, a scene about a dinner table when I was eight years old. The next thing is a scene of playing in the playground in school and then a, a scene of going to the beach with my friends and a, a scene of um, throwing some stone through a window in a tennis club with my brother. Uh, so my mind sort of created these weird new uh, memories came up. And it's very much like being in a hypnopompic state, the sort of state you're in on Sunday morning you wake up and you don't quite want to get out of bed yet and you're able to sleep late. You have all these unconnected thoughts running through your mind. And when after you've done that and people go back to the original thing, it has lost its power. You say, yes, it happened. But the emotional power of it has been lost, has, is gone. And this is actually interesting because when people say, first started to talk about trauma, like Freud back in 1893, he said, trauma is about people not being able to make associations, that the event is stuck and not associated to other things. And what the EMDR seems to do, it seems to associate the trauma with other life experiences. So it just becomes part of the big soup of our memories of our lives. When someone suffers a trauma and, in the language of this discussion, becomes stuck, why does one person become stuck and another person could experience the same thing and that doesn't happen? They don't become stuck. What's going on in, in the stuck well, versus unstuck? People, people, often, people often ask this question. Now, we never ask this question in our clinic. Uh, when people come to see me, my reaction is always, oh, my God. How did you make it this far? How did you go on with your life after doing that? And my reaction is always like, I have no idea if I would have been able to cope with whatever happened to you more than you did. Uh, so uh, 
probably is true that some people have an identical trauma, like get gang raped at age 15. Um, do okay. How do you define okay is another question. Does it show up somewhere in their lives? Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I have a number of people in my practice, actually much of my practice is of people who I read about in the New York Times and I hear about them because many of them are very successful people. And everybody would call them um, resilient, except they see me because they go home and mutilate themselves or they go home because they have some very complex sexual perversion or something. So when you say somebody's really resilient, I wouldn't call anybody resilient unless I get to really, really know them really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But clearly there are people who are resilient, and maybe you've met some of them in your life. I meet with, I meet them every day. Every one of my patients is resilient. Okay. And tell me more about this quality of resilient. And I mean, let's say somebody's listening and they're like, I want to be more resilient. Uh, That's what I want. Well, uh, actually, people need to get in touch with their resilient because they already are resilient. The fact that you get up in the morning and do whatever you do means that you're resilient. Good point. Uh, 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 people are amazingly resilient. But the reason, you know, that's why I sort of push back on your yeah. opening question is what really intrigues me about trauma is my encounter with the life force. Is to meet people who go on despite unbelievable hardships. That you meet, meet enormous courage and willingness for people to try out things. You know, traumatized people usually get horribly mistreated in mental health systems and people tell them they're going to fix them and do stuff for them and the majority of the treatments are terrible, but they still keep hanging in there, go on and try to find other treatments. Uh, so what you see is the life force of people continue to struggle to carve out a life for themselves. And that, of course, is what you want to make use of as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That innate capacity to to go on. Like a number of my colleagues teach, um, let's say, Shakespeare in the prison. And they get to love their prisoners because they work together and they really uncover the enormous resiliency that's inside of people. Yes, they may have murdered somebody in the context of doing so, so but you still find it amazing that the eagerness to have a life, to create something. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, one of the things you talk about in The Body Keeps the Score is the power of people developing a skill that you call interoception, and that this can be incredibly helpful in well, healing trauma. Now, it's, yeah. it's actually it's essential. It is something that um, you look for, whether people are able to reflect on themselves, to know what, you're, what they're feeling, to know what's going on inside of them, to know uh, their reactions to things around them. And what you see in traumatized people and politicians is that they just react and they don't know what they're feeling. They project their feelings on other people. And so they lack that, that essential interoceptive capacity where they can look after themselves and know, oh, this is what's going on with me and that's why I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. Now, this word interoception, I don't think is a word that most people, unless they've studied your work or similar work in the field, are yeah. familiar with. And so I want to be sure that I understand that I'm 
engaging in interoception when I'm connecting at an organismic level with my experience, when yeah, I just no, kind of know what I'm thinking? It's, it's nothing fancy about it. It's like, okay. uh, you, you know, you just you have soup for lunch and you go like, wow, that tastes really good. That's, that soup tastes much better than the soup I had yesterday. I wonder what the ingredients are that makes my palate respond this particular way. Um, it, it's very similar to mindfulness. Well, it, it, there's a certain part of your brain, which I call in my book the Mohawk of the brain. That's, that's um, the part of your brain that's devoted to your taking care of yourself, you knowing what's going on inside of you, yourself, which is activated by mindfulness. But the trouble is that this capacity to look inside and to feel yourself uh, becomes very hard when you're traumatized because once you go inside, you meet all these demons that you have stored inside of yourself. Uh, and so traumatized people often have, to have a very hard time reflecting on themselves, feeling themselves, noticing themselves. And their internal world becomes very dangerous to them. And yet the only way you can get better is by having this um, compassionate self-observing capacity. That really is the goal of treatment, is to create a compassionate self-observing person. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you're not just describing it as mindfulness, but that you're emphasizing this self-compassionate quality as well. Well, that's 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 not you know that doesn't come from me or the, you know a lot of people in this field actually are discovering that, for example, in the Mind and Life Institute, uh, there's a German researcher by the name of uh, Tanya Singer, who was a mindfulness researcher, and she says, interesting, mindfulness is not all that. Uh, that useful by itself, but she finds out in her research if you combine mindfulness with self-compassion, people get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, uh, it's a, the self-compassion part is a very critical part. And to my mind, that's really the, the only capacity that needs to be cultivated in therapy, basically. Okay, that's a big statement. Did yeah. you say the only capacity or well, the most the main, important or the main? The okay. most important, main, yeah, I think that's the big thing, is to learn to feel yourself deeply and compassionately. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Okay, now... Very hard to do. For someone who's suffered a certain amount of trauma, you said when they go inside and interocept, look for their inner experience, they may find something like demons, I think is what you said. And I'm curious to know a little bit more, might someone who suffered a lot of trauma just find like numbness, nothing? It's just numb, I don't feel, you know. That is, that's a very big thing. And, you know, my conference this year, a large part of my conference, I've run this conference 28 years. and uh, So this year, a large part of the conference was actually focused on what uh, we know about numbing and an internal lack of a sense of self and a sense of um, capacity that finding nothing when you go inside you know? mm-hmm. and how to cultivate it, yeah, how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so since this quality of self-compassionate awareness, if you will, of what's going on inside of us is so important and one of the most important objectives of therapy. Tell me how a good trauma therapist helps somebody develop a self-compassionate posture towards their either numb or difficult experience. Very simple. Develop it yourself. Mm-hmm. You mean when the therapist has it, then it's contagious? Yeah. But if you don't have it as a therapist, you can't encourage other people to do it. I see that all the time. How, how do I get my patients to say, what do you do yourself? How are you doing yourself? Okay, that seems to me necessary, but is it sufficient? Is that enough? I do that as a therapist. I mm. have a deeply self-compassionate attitude towards my own experience. That's a very, very important beginning step. Okay. And then you, be, and then you become curious about if you know how it's for yourself so well, why isn't it working for that person? And then you start working with that person on what gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they, they, they become a diagnostician also. And so part of what we find gets in the way is that there's all kind of really very messed up stuff in the brain that 
that causes people to be numbed out. That eventually goes goes into neurofeedback, for example. Uh, but anyway, so so most of my uh, the last five chapters of my book are all about different ways of getting there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask you a question. You know, in my own life, it's been quite a journey yeah. to be self-accepting, self-compassionate towards my own experience. And I'm curious for you, since this is such an important quality that you discovered that you would need as a clinician, what was that journey like for you, developing that quality? Well, I always feel like I owe people refunds for the first 20 years of my practice. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that my editor threw out of my book is that one of the ironies of this field is that the teacher pays the student uh, the fees for getting better. And your patient teach you, and life teaches you. And we basically get a license that I trained to malpractice. And then slowly over time you learn it. But it takes a long time. And so what is helpful for me, and I'm incredibly fortunate, is that I, because of the, I think, probably initial brain scans or some other work I did, a lot of people were eager to teach me stuff. And so uh, I had easy access to many people like Peter Levine and Pat Ogden and El Peso and Dick Schwartz and all these people who did these amazing treatments. And they say, would you like to try it? And it's sure. And so I got to really experience how how transformative they were. Uh, so, you know, as my friend Beatrice Bibi, the attachment researcher likes to say, all research is research at the end, of course. We're always looking for to cure ourselves, and therapists become therapists to cure themselves also. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like after the first 20 years, a new dawning of a, a kind of self-compassionate attitude towards yourself started to take hold more in your experience, I mean, it sounds that way, and that these different methods were helpful. But was there some kind of shift in you like, how did that shift happen inside you? So it's very, it was a very slow shift. The, the, I, the, a pivotal moment for me was um, the founding meeting of the U.S. Body Psychotherapy Conference. I was invited to, as the neuroscientist to teach body people about uh, the brain. And the moment I walked into that meeting, I saw a whole bunch of people who looked much healthier than the neuroscientists and the psychoanalysts and the cognitive behavioral people I'd hang out with. Their bodies moved more fluidly and calmly. And that meeting was a very big meeting for me because um, I saw people work with the body that clearly were doing things that I'd never seen happen. And then they started to work with me. They opened up things inside of me that I'd never had access to before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned neurofeedback, and similar to EMDR, I think some of our listeners may be familiar, but other people may be. What was that? Right. Dr. Van der Kolk said neurofeedback. Uh, yeah. what, what is that? How does that work? <laughs> Once again, how we don't know. Work? We how, don't know how, how it works. How does your car work? How does your car work? How, how do airplanes work? <laughs> um, so, you can harvest the brain waves that people generate at all times by putting little electrodes on the skull. You can hook the uh, electrodes up to a computer. You can register the brain waves so you can read people's brain waves. And then in the neurofeedback program, you can translate those brain waves into a computer game. And you can set them in such a way that you can uh, give your brain rewards for certain creating certain patterns of neuronal activity. So you play computer games with your own brain waves, basically. Uh, you don't move anything, you don't try anything. Your brain gets feedback from the computer uh, in the form of lights and sounds and movement on the computer. So you, your brain waves play with the computer, basically. You just sit passively by, by while the, uh, the computer sort of gives you feedback about it. That's good, and that's good. Yeah, do more of that, and so your brain automatically—it's a little bit like training a dog, you know, like you give them little cookies and walk them, and you lift them up in time to take them to the bathroom. So you do the same thing with your brain. You just sort of train your brain to create new brainwave patterns. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I want to just close a loop, if you will, and make sure I really understand this, because you talked about how this quality of being able to be compassionate towards our experience and be in touch with our experience is so critical for healing trauma. So what is it? Now we're in touch with our experience. We're self-compassionate. We know what's happening in any given moment. I feel irritated. I feel angry. I loved the taste of the anchovies that it, they put in that salad dressing, whatever it might be. But, but, uh, and, yeah. And, and then you, so you notice it. Uh, yeah. By noticing you, you activated that medial prefrontal cortex, which is your platform, self-observing platform of your brain. And the next thing you do is say, okay, now I feel really upset and panicky. And you activate another part of your brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that goes, is a timekeeper of your brain. And you go, okay, now I'm feeling that. Notice what happens next. Notice when I take a deep breath. Notice when I stand up. Notice when I move my foot. Notice when I just sit here still and what happens to my mind when it happens. And you, you start noticing that you have a fluid, alive inner world, basically. And that it's okay to feel panicky because nothing lasts. The issue where, where people get stuck when they get traumatized is to become afraid to feel what they feel and to know what they know. And so the whole goal of treatment is to make people feel safe enough uh, so they can allow themselves to feel what they feel and to know what they know and to know that everything keeps changing inside. And so the, the disease of post-traumatic stress is a disease of your time, timing system of your mind and brain having broken down so that you cannot allow yourself to notice how things continuously change. Mm-hmm. The timing system, what do you mean by that? Uh, our interview is going to be over in a little while. Yes, that's I true. Know, that's right. uh, so I may be hungry or need for go for a walk, I need to go to the bathroom. And I say, it's okay, you can talk to this lady because in a few minutes it will be over and you can do something else. And once you know that nothing lasts, you can put up with what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Now, this is so helpful and this idea of a fluid, alive inner world as you, the goal, if you will, I think, is that fair to say, of a healing process is knowing that, feeling that, being in touch moment to moment with the fluid alive inner world? Is that yeah. fair to say? Okay. So, that's fair. Yeah. what about the sense that somebody might have? There are times when I feel this fluid alive inner world and I feel kind of overwhelmed by it, whether it's the ecstasy of it, the speed of it, the ephemeral nature of it. I feel, I just get a, feel a little overwhelmed. It's so alive. It's well, so. Notice that, notice that, and then notice that. Oh shit! I'm sitting in front of a traffic light, and now it's a traffic jam, and that feeling has disappeared again. <laughs> Things will change. Things will change, and of course, the reason why we got this neurofeedback is that some people's nervous system is so hyper aroused or so continuously shut down that they cannot get there. And when we look at their EEGs, you go like, wow, it's amazing that this person is even functioning at all because so many different parts of the brain are not talking to other parts of the brain. And when there is so much disruption, uh, we start doing neurofeedback, and then what we see happen, uh, we just published a big paper on that in a magazine called PLOS One, major neuroscience journal. Um, what you see happening is an increase in executive functioning, the ability to become flexible, to find new solutions for problems, to inhibit yourself from doing things that will get you into trouble, that will hurt other people. And to, uh, so it, basically what, what we notice is a sharp decrease in the capacity to be mindful and to be creative as we calm different parts of the brain down and connect them with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about neurofeedback, and we've talked about EMDR, and in your book, The Body Keeps the Score, you profile more than a dozen different approaches to this organismic level of transformation. And I thought it was very interesting that you included a strong section on yoga, and I think most of the time, 
people don't associate yoga as a trauma healing modality. They think of it as something else, but not that. Right. But that's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, so we did the first research funded by NIH on yoga for PTSD based on our observations about disturbance of heart rate variability, disturbances of people's capacity to notice what goes on in their bodies. And so we did this yoga study and we basically found that yoga, our outcome is better than any medication ever studied for PTSD. Um, of course, after we published our article, I didn't see psychopharmacology clinics trans- transforming themselves into yoga studios. But if you go with the data, that's what you would do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to just, at the moment, repeat myself that I, I like the facts, and I believe these facts, so they fit my emotions. So I'm emotionally behind these facts as well about mm-hmm. yoga. Makes right, a lot right. of sense. Yeah. See, that's how, that's how it needs to go, right? Yeah, exactly. As long as, yeah. You, right, as, long as it doesn't resonate, the facts are developed. Right? Okay. <laughs> now, one of the other modalities that you talked about that I was completely unfamiliar with before I read The Body Keeps the Score is something that you called psychodramatic structures. And I mean, I thought of it right. as almost like a re-scripting through a theatrical performance. That's of, correct. Yeah. And so I thought, well, that's really, how does that work? And how is that getting underneath the story if we're just kind of enacting theatrically a new story? But describe to our listeners what this modality is and well, your hypothesis of you how know, it works. Of all the chapters in my book, this is the most puzzling one and the one that both my publisher and my editor wanted me to throw out. And yet I do these weekends. I do about three weekends per year where I do nothing but that with small groups of people. And it always ends up in spectacular changes. Um, And this is a method I learned from an old uh, dancer, actually, uh, Albert Pesso. And... um, it's based on the notion that if you put your internal world out into three-dimensional space, it becomes very vivid. So you can see how the different characters that have been in your life to have been important to you or unimportant for you. Uh, when you put them in space, you, it becomes much richer. And then what we do is something that uh, is very central to the issue of, of trauma also. When you get traumatized, you're, you have a breakdown in your imagination that things can be different. Like if you have been chronically neglected as a kid, you don't believe that anybody will ever love you or care for you. That just becomes a, you cannot imagine that, what it's like to be loved. And so the reason I got into this method is that we always fo- focus on what bad, bad thing has happened to you. But we have never been able to focus very much on what is missing. When you don't know what it feels like to be held and loved, it's hard to imagine it. Uh, but if, it if you don't know what it's like to light up a room when you walk into it, which all of us deserve to get as kids, uh, you cannot imagine it, a room will light up when you walk in there. So you walk into every room of your life um, as somebody who will not light up a room. Um, and so what you do in these psychodramatic structures is you recreate certain critical people and relationships in your life in three-dimensional space, and you create an ideal parent. And that ideal parent is chosen as one of the group members, and the ideal parent says, if I'd been there when you were three years old and this happened to you, I would have protected you. And that person touches you as you have that feeling. And the capacity of recreating this in three-dimensional space and being able to imagine what it would be like if when you were three years old, there would have been a person who would have helped you in that particular way or would have protected you. Uh, is I've never seen it fail. It's invariably a very profound experience. It opens up new possibilities in people's minds. Um, I'm cautious about it because I wouldn't, I'm a researcher and I always like to submit everything I do to uh, to actual serious scientific tests, I wouldn't know how to do it with this. It's too complex. Moment to moment observing stuff. It's a, but it's a beautiful way of treating people. You know, what's interesting when you talk about 
working at the organismic level in something like yoga mm. or EMDR or neurofeedback, yeah. I'm kind of with you in terms of how we're getting down below our cognitive functioning. We're getting deep down into the organism itself. When you talk about this psychodramatic structure, I think, well, wait a second, isn't there going to be a part of me? So this person who I know is a member of the group is holding me and petting my head and telling me that I'm so lovable and stuff like that. Isn't there going to be some part of me that goes, come on, I don't believe that. That's not true. No, the, the person doesn't tell you, no, the, the person that doesn't tell you that you're lovable. The person says, if I had been back then, I would have protected you. Uh-huh. So the things that were missing okay. get provided in people's imagination. And every, nobody in the room is psychotic. And everybody in the room knows that they're just imagining something. But boy, does it feel real. Right. So this tells us something very interesting about imagination and our organismic level of functioning. Don't you yes. think? Well, you know, we are a symbolic species and we are people who live by our, our imagination. You know, uh, uh, when you were preparing to talk to me, you started to imagine what it would be like yes. to talk to me, and you started to prepare yourself for it. And you know, maybe it did work out, it didn't work out, but we continuously imagine in our minds what the outcome will be. And and what you do in so many of these somatic therapies is to explore things. Like let's let's see what will happen if we do that, or let's explore the possibility of. There's also my, like, my last chapter, so about the theater chapter, of what it's like to be Julius Caesar in a Shakespeare play, or what it's like to be this Willie Lohman in a play, what it's like like my son, who was a uh, rocket in the West Side Story, and got to experience what it's like to be a tough Hispanic gang member in New York in the 1960s or something, 50s. Um, and to really explore what it feels like to try something else on a very visceral level. Um, I think that's, that's, that's one of the great open frontiers in, in, in our field, is that you know we, we tend to be very passive and reflect and think about things, but we don't act. Uh, but moving on with life is to take new actions. Mm -hmm. To a very powerful point of getting over trauma is to act in ways that are different from the way you've acted. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, I talk about model mugging, where people are, women are taught to fight and to, to, to do karate. Uh, of course, the people who really know this is the U.S. Army, uh, who takes a bunch of good-for-nothing raw recruits at age 17 and 18, and by having them act in a certain way and move and do things, form them into a fantastic fighting force in 12, 12 weeks' time. I mean, those guys really know how to deal with the transformation of adolescence in the way that no psychotherapist has ever begun to equal. You know? They don't do it by, let me talk about your feelings, what it's like to be in the uh, U.S. Marine. No, let's make you into a U.S. Marine, and you go to climb, and you go to crawl, and you go to fight, you go to do things. And before it's long, it's in your body, and it's there. I said, I'm a tough guy. I can do things. Uh, so being able to instill these things in people's viscera is terribly important. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to a final area that I want to talk about, which is what kinds of changes do you envision in your imagination, in your positive imagination, that we could make as a culture whether that's in terms of our educational system or cultural norms, if you will, that will help us heal the pervasiveness of trauma in our world today, that will help people be more fluid alive in their inner world? How does the culture well, need to change? Course, yeah, well, that, of course, is a, a political question. As to who are we as a political unit and what are our priorities? And, of course, that is taking a major... Uh, major blow in, in the last few months. Um, and that is whether uh, we really respect people and respect people's capacities and people's vulnerabilities. Uh, this whole educational system, of course, is terrible. That all the things that are helpful for people, moving, uh, interacting, creativity, 
collaboration are not part of the, are increasingly being shunned by the educational system in favor of tests. You know, um, you don't need to give kids tests. You know, I never took tests, particularly growing up at a very, very sort of classical education with Greek and Latin, five languages. So, um, you know, kids are naturally want to learn if they live in an environment that is safe, that promotes curiosity, where you're asked to write. I wrote a lot of plays as a kid in my, when I was growing up. As it, but you do and you act and you see the results of your labor, you see your results of co- collaboration, then you start feeling good about yourself. If you just sit there and take tests, starting in kindergarten, that you can pass or fail, uh, and you have no interactions, that's a terrible thing to do. Um, so in my in my day-to-day life, it's interesting that you see all these different parts of our uh, health delivery system. Uh, um, I teach in the medical school and they see that people are being taught this very uh, strange diagnostic system that has no scientific validity and so-called evidence-based treatments and and they all die on the vine uh, because it's so ungratifying because they never see people getting better. And I see uh, other communities like the internal family systems community where people feel alive and optimistic and where they're respectful of their patients and and I worked with my theater groups, and uh, they're lively and interesting. But what I keep seeing is that people get paid to do treatments that don't work. People don't get paid for treatments that do work, which is the great irony of our society. You, know, you, uh, you get paid to give people drugs, but you don't do not get paid to, to really work with people. I, I know a whole bunch of uh, people I know who say, oh, it's really great. They let me into the VA, and I'm able to do yoga with veterans now. I say, oh, are they paying you? They say, no, no, they pay the psychopharmacologists, but they don't pay the yoga teachers. Um, and that's what I see all around, is that uh, the, cre- the, the things that require creativity and openness do not get supported, both in school systems and mental health systems. Well, we're going to have to change that. Good luck. That means political action. Uh, yeah, ready to go. Well, we, no, I think we need to be honest. You know, it's very important to be honest. Uh, you know, you, you cannot always just say, "Oh, let me just not say something to offend somebody." No, you need to be honest. If people want to overcome trauma, they need to move and interact and uh, be encouraged to play an active role in their own recovery. Now, Dr. Vanderkoek, I want to call this conversation we've had fluid, alive, and optimistic. That's what I'd like to call the conversation. And if that's okay with you. Yes, yeah, fine. And to end on this note of this third quality, optimistic, you mentioned the life force and how you, mm. something you see and you believe in, its strength, its indestructibility, if you will. But I'm curious to know in your own words, because you sound, in a way, very realistic, but also optimistic. What optimism means to you and how it stays so alive in you? Well, you know, you have to be careful here, because what I also see is unspeakable pain and suffering. I know that. Side by side. Side by side. And, you know, know, know what, what is a big thing? is that once you see people get better when you do these things, that that makes you optimistic. And once you see that being brutally honest with yourself and about what works and what doesn't work, and having colleagues around you who can be brutally honest with you, who are not sort of gilding the lily and primarily ideologues, but you know, one of the core things of how you grow as a therapist is Take videotapes of your work. Look at your work. Look at what you do. Don't just talk about what you do, but actually look at what you do because you'll see yourself doing all kinds of really weird things. Um, so you miss the boat half of the time. And, and so show your videotapes to your colleagues, not all of your colleagues, but the colleagues who you trust, and think together about what you can do better. Uh, it's all about being deeply honest. Overcoming trauma is about being deeply honest about what you feel and what you know and what has happened to you. Um, and that's how we will grow. And, that's, and once you see that 
being really honest with what what you do and what happens to your patients will actually work, you'll become optimistic. Now tell me, just to connect this for a moment, how deep honesty is an important part of healing trauma. Why is that? But trauma is all about uh, not wanting to know what you know and not wanting to feel what you feel because it's it's you think it's too much, and to a large degree it is too much. And when it's happened, it was too much. And so the whole issue of therapy is you need to create a place where it becomes safe to feel and know what you couldn't feel and know when this actually happened to you. And so the issue of the creation of a safe place in inside of yourself and with your therapist, whoever you work with, uh, that makes it possible to go to these very dark places is, is critical. I've been speaking with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who's written the New York Times bestselling book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Dr. van der Kolk, thank you so much for making the time for this conversation and for inspiring me. Thank you. You're welcome. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey, a fluid, alive inner world. Thanks for listening.